Good, well, my name's Owen. For those of you who don't know me, uh, I just want to reiterate the welcome that Mike gave earlier. Whether you're a Foundation regular or whether you're with us for the first time today, I'm so glad that you've joined us. Uh, And you joined today, if it's your first time, a a good time. We're just about to start a brand new series looking at the New Testament book of Luke. We're going to be walking together over the next weeks through this uh, amazing book, this uh, life story, biographical account of the life of Jesus. Uh, and we're not going to hurry through it. We're going to take our time as we journey through this book together. Uh, we're not going to try and do it all in, in kind of one hit. We'll break up the series throughout this year as we go with a few other things. But we're going to make a start today. Now, one of the interesting things with the book of Luke, which we'll see in the coming weeks, is that it is packed with journeys, and actually about half of the book documents one journey in particular that Jesus took uh, to Jerusalem, uh, to the cross. Uh, And actually, it it was only maybe four days' walk from where he began that journey, Uh, and we find the beginning of it in chapter 9, but actually, he took his time getting there. He took around six months, uh, perhaps even longer, to actually uh, make that journey. And that wasn't because he was procrastinating, because he was trying to kind of put off getting to Jerusalem uh, and his crucifixion. It wasn't because he got lost on the way or because he wasn't clear where he was going. Uh, No, it was because there were things for him to accomplish on that journey, conversations for him to have with people, encounters for him to have with people every day longer than the four days it could have taken him to walk was a deliberate conscious choice on Jesus' behalf that we might see something of who he is and what he's like and how he engages with people. Uh, And so we're going to look at all of those interactions over the coming weeks Uh, And we've titled this series, because of all of the journeys in Luke's gospel, On the Road with Jesus. Because that's really, uh, in lots of ways, what Luke's gospel documents is is Jesus' life on the road, as it were. And when you spend a long time in someone's company, you really get to know them, don't you? When you go traveling with someone, I don't know if any of you have ever been uh, traveling around with a friend of yours... You get to know someone in a whole new light when you go traveling with them. You see how they behave when they're out of their comfort zone. You see what they're like when they're tired and hungry. And not just the journey to Jerusalem, but all the way through Luke's gospel. As I said, Jesus travels around a lot and he invited people to join him on that journey. And as they do, they see him as he really is. They really get to know him. And we're invited to join him too. And as we join him over these coming weeks, we're going to get to see up close through these accounts in Luke's Gospel what Jesus is really like. What he's like under pressure. How he handles different characters and people that he meets along the way. And how he sees through his plan to seek and save the lost. Now, we read the first couple of chapters of Luke's 
gospel in the run-up to Christmas in our series that we call The Soundtrack to Christmas as we looked at those first uh, couple of chapters and the songs contained within them. Uh, And so we're going to pick up in chapter 3 today as we start this series together. And these verses that we'll read today are going to help set us up for the rest of the series. Because these verses today, actually Jesus isn't traveling anywhere just yet. Uh, And Luke takes these verses to introduce us to Jesus in some more detail. He, He uses these verses to tell us who Jesus is and to also, as we'll see in a moment, to tell us how we should respond to who Jesus is. And so we're going to see that as we go. And rather than read the whole passage up front, the way we're going to do this today is we'll read a few verses, then we'll pause, unpack those verses, and then move on to the next section. We're going to cover the whole of chapter 3 today. So if you've got your Bibles, I would encourage you to open them and read. The words will come up on the screen for you to read along, but I would encourage you to open your Bible Uh, And read with me. So we're in Luke chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. We read this. In the 15th year, the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of of Ituria and Traconitus, it's okay, no one really knows how to say those words, actually clever people do, I don't, Uh, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Now up front, before we get into anything else, before we set off on this journey together, we need to know that Luke is a detail guy, And he is keen that this letter, this book that he wrote, is a reliable and trustworthy historical account of the life of Jesus. And to help us uh, to kind of see that this is reliable and trustworthy, to help us see it in its context, to know where and when this took place, Luke actually names no less than seven historical figures to put this in context. He wants to leave us in no doubt as we read this together that this isn't some fairy tale, that this is a historic account of the life of Jesus Christ. And actually right at the beginning of Luke's gospel, at the beginning of chapter one, he tells us uh, in, in his motivation for reading, that he, for writing, that he's written this account that we might know the truth about Jesus Christ, that we might know the truth of what we've heard about Jesus. And so Luke gives us seven historic figures and where they were, and that helps us to read this in real life. We know from that that this was around the year 27 AD. And in around the year 27 AD, in Judea, in the wilderness, the word of God came to John, spoke to him while he was out in the desert. And as a result, 
We read what John did next. God spoke to him, and this is what he did. Let's read on from verse 3 together. And he went into the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. John preaches what he's heard from God. And what is it? It's a message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And in response to that, baptism as a sign of being washed clean, of making a new start, of doing away with the old and beginning again. And knowing that John is preaching this baptism of repentance, Luke pulls in some words written by the prophet Isaiah hundreds of years before John arrived on the scene and he applies them in this context. The context of John preparing people to meet Jesus, crying out in the desert, in the wilderness, that people should repent and make way for the Lord. He says that John, preaching this message of repentance, was the one who Isaiah spoke about, who would be a voice crying out in the wilderness. That's precisely what John was doing, right? Tells us he was in the wilderness, traveling around, crying out. And what was he telling people to do? He was getting people to prepare the way for the Lord, getting them ready to receive the Lord. In other words, he's getting them ready to meet Jesus. It's like a big kind of billboard, like saying, He's coming, He's coming, get ready to meet him. And the picture that Isaiah painted all those hundreds of years before John came of what was going to happen when John came and what this was all about is this picture of ground being leveled to create like a a grand highway to the entrance of a city for the, the king to travel in on. It's like the Royal Mile, I guess, leading up towards Buckingham Palace. That's the sort of picture that we should... Oh, not Buckingham Palace. (laughs) Brilliant. My mind's gone blank anyway. (laughs) But it's like the Royal Mile (laughs) to Windsor Castle. This great, long, straight run to the Queen's residence. That's the sort of picture that we should have in mind, that everything is cleared out of the way. This straight highway is created so that people can see and greet the Lord properly when he comes. The great highway John was building with his preaching and encouraging people to, to join in with was not one of kind of paving, 
It wasn't a, a kind of excavation project of kind of digging down and leveling mountains and filling in valleys and, and making physical land straight. This highway that was being prepared was one of repentance, of clearing ground from the things in our lives that would get in the way of us receiving Jesus. Repentance means a complete about turn, a change of focus, a change of direction. It means turning away from sin and turning towards God. Turning away from doing things our way, away from living to please ourselves and instead turning towards God and saying yes to his ways and living instead to please him. So repentance doesn't earn forgiveness, but the Bible is very clear that no one will be saved without repentance. Repentance is a sure sign of the work of the Spirit of God in your life, recognizing who God is and your need of his mercy in your life. And in Isaiah's words, I love this. It's the last bit we just read. He says, all flesh shall see the salvation of God. In other words, he says, it doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter what your background is. If you turn to him, if you make straight the way, if you, through repentance, prepare this highway to receive the king, if you turn towards him, you will find forgiveness and salvation. Now John preached this message. He said, repent, turn from your sins, turn towards God, stop trying to go your way and receive him and go his way and be baptised. And thousands of people responded and came to be baptised. There's a huge response now, you'd think John would be pleased about this huge response. You might even think success would go to his head. I know lots of people who just think, you know, numbers, that is the measure of success. This is amazing. There's a huge crowd, John. You must be delighted. You've preached this message and thousands are here. But John says something Intriguing, his response to this crowd is interesting. We read on from verse 7. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees, and every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. You see, John knew that not everyone who was coming to be baptised was genuine or sincere, that their repentance was a show, their baptism was meaningless. It was, it was just a religious facade. They had no intention of living the way God 
required them to. They had no intention of living their lives given over to him. They wanted the benefits. They wanted to be part of the in crowd who were doing that, but they didn't really see their need of a saviour. And they weren't willing to change at all. In fact, for some of them, they simply thought, and John points this out, that having the right cultural heritage and going through the motions would be enough. John cleared that up for them, didn't he? (laughs) I love that expression. He says that God could turn these stones into children of Abraham if he wanted to. He's like, just the fact your, your cultural heritage is meaningless if you don't truly repent of your sin and turn to God. If you think you can just carry on doing whatever you please, living your way and with no regard to God, then you are sorely mistaken. You know, it's a little like this. You know, it's less so now, but... I'm sure you've all met people and had conversations with people who, who like assume that they are Christian because they're British. You've had com- I've had loads of conversations with people like that. They say, yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. Yeah, I went to Sunday school when I was a kid. I'm a Christian. Yeah, I, I, you know, because I'm, I'm British. So, yeah, I, I, and I'm not anything else. So, yeah, I'm, I'm a Christian. I go to church, you know, Christmas and Easter, you know, the big ones. And, and, you know, and I was christened. I was christened. (laughs) That's the same kind of appeal that these people were were making, (laughs) that they were saying to themselves. We're God's people. We're Abraham's descendants. John's saying, no, no, no. (laughs) It's not that. (laughs) It's not that. You meet other people who seem way more committed than that. You meet some people who seem way, way more committed. Incredibly devout, religious people. But actually, in reality, they're no different to these who John spoke to. People who attend church week in, week out, who will be are dialing in online through lockdown. Even read their Bibles regularly and pray. They turn up to all the meetings. They use the right words. They sing along to the right songs. But they're holding on to sin in their lives. They haven't repented. They aren't ready to meet King Jesus. In lots of ways, those were the kind of people that John was addressing here. So just, just kind of going through the motions of religious activity is not what's required. Being born into a Christian family is not what's required. It doesn't make you a Christian. It doesn't prepare you to meet King Jesus. John says it's not enough. You need to repent of your sins. You need to acknowledge your need of a saviour and turn to him. True repentance 
means bearing fruit. Also, that's in keeping with it. Your life changes. Your priorities change. John is at pains to point that out here. And he says, doesn't he? He says, says that axe, this is a stark warning. He says that axe is at the root of the trees. Any tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. See, John's saying for, for those who haven't truly repented, for those for whom this is just a show, it's just a, a kind of cultural experience, says, judgment is coming and will come. The axe is at the root of the tree. It's those who are just living with a facade of faith, John says, are in danger. They will be destroyed. They will not enjoy heaven. It's a strong words, right? But it's a warning that is repeated through Scripture. And one we need to take seriously. We'll see as we journey through Luke that it's actually a warning Jesus himself issues too. And while it sounds harsh, it's the most loving message you could bring. See, John's desire, it wasn't like he was delighting in saying it, he was pleading with people. He was warning them, before it's too late, turn from your sins, repent, trust in God to save you. Make straight the way. Prepare to meet King Jesus. John is clear. Judgment is coming. But there's forgiveness to be found. So make straight the way of the Lord and receive salvation. I want to encourage you to not just shake that off lightly today. To consider for yourself. Am I just playing games? Am I like some of those people who came to John to be baptised? Like I, I want the benefits, but I'm not actually prepared to repent and turn from my sin and trust God. See, the truth is there's no salvation without repentance. It's impossible to welcome Jesus without repentance. Now some of the people who responded to John's warning, and it's interesting to note who some of them are, is they're not the type of people who you might think would be heading out to be baptised by John. See, they weren't the already religious types that you might expect to be there. We read that some of them were soldiers and tax collectors, and John has advice for them as they respond to him. See, as he warned them that the axe was at the root, as he warned them of the coming judgment and pleaded with them to repent, they said this. We read from verse 10, the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptised and said to him, Teacher, what should we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you're authorised to do. 
soldiers asked him, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations and be content with your wages. The tax system, just to explain some of those, the tax system was as corrupt as you like, with layers of bureaucracy and tax collectors in those times were notorious for collecting more tax than was really owed and pocketing the difference for themselves. John says to them, if you've repented, your life should look different as a result. Stop ripping people off and start being honest in your financial dealings. Only collect what you're supposed to. Soldiers who came to him. Soldiers then weren't well paid. It wasn't, wasn't a great salary. So it was actually quite commonplace for soldiers to find ways of extorting money from people, of, of lining their pockets with some additional income through less than honest means. And John says to them, if you've truly repented... This comes out of a place of trusting God to provide for you. Be content with what you have. Don't be driven by greed for more. Be content. And to others who came, he says, if you've got more than you need, share it with those who don't. If you've got more food than you need, share it with people who are hungry. If you have more clothes than you need, share them with people who don't. See, repentance bears fruit in our lives. It should look like something. It makes a material difference to the way we live, the priorities we have, what we do with our stuff. Even when it comes down to clothing and food, John says, it should make a difference True repentance leads to a life that isn't self-serving, but is marked by honesty and generosity, humility. Living a life of repentance doesn't mean kind of cutting yourself off from the world and living in kind of splendid isolation. It means living differently in it. Living instead of for your own gain and your own glory, living for the glory of God and the good of others. That's, that's the fruit of repentance. That's the fruit of a heart that says, oh, I'm not living for myself anymore, but I'm living to please you. God, would you help me by your spirit to do that? The result is generosity. The result is living for the glory of God and the good of others. It's important we note these good works don't earn salvation. This isn't what we do in order to be saved. There are plenty of people who want to justify themselves by their good works. And they won't. And they can't. But if we're truly repentant, if we truly are given to following God, then our lives will demonstrate that fact. It will have an impact on our day-to-day. With this warning... And with his preaching, John had people wondering if he was the promised Messiah, the rescuer who they'd been waiting for. 
So we read from verse 15, as people were filled with expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire, his winnowing folk, is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. See, people's viewing of John in this light could have easily gone to his head, yeah? He could have kind of gone, I'm pretty special, yeah? But he didn't. John is quick to correct them and to point them to Jesus as the true saviour. And then, as we see in what John says here, he's eager to point out how Jesus is better than him in every respect, how Jesus is superior to him in every respect. It's easy for us to try and make ourselves look good. That's not what John does, and it's not what we should do. We need to be like John, who's quick to point people to Jesus. John points out that Jesus' baptism is greater than John's. John's is in baptism, a sign of repentance. But Jesus will baptise people who trust in him, in his Holy Spirit, as a sign of adoption into the family of God. Sins forgiven, conscience cleansed. It's a better baptism. Jesus' judgment fulfilled John's prophecy. John gave that warning, but he didn't know who was genuine and who wasn't, and neither do we. John warned of a coming judgment, but then when he speaks of Jesus, he says Jesus is the one who will judge. He'll clear the threshing floor. He'll divide the wheat from the chaff, those who've truly repented and put their trust in him, and those who are playing games. John said just judgment would come. But Jesus, being the one who does know the condition of our hearts, brings that judgment. We read that John continued to preach this good news about Jesus. This good news that through repentance we might come to relationship with him. We read together from verse 18, with many other exhortations he preached Good news to the people. But Herod, the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him, that's by John, for Herodias, his brother's wife. So just John had taken his brother's wife for himself. John had called him out on it, said that's not right. Read on. And for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked John up in prison. And actually, we read in other gospel accounts that he executed John. See, the good news that John continued to preach wasn't always well received as good news. See, it is good news because it's not too late to repent. It's not too late to find forgiveness. But proud hearts like Herod's dismiss it and become offended by it. And for John, that led to his execution. 
I want to encourage you to not respond like Herod with a hard heart. Now, having set the scene with John calling people to get ready to receive salvation, to receive the Messiah with repentant hearts and to live true devotion and obedience to God, we then see Jesus. And in the following verses, we see Jesus revealed as the true Son of God, the promised rescuer, the one who came to save us, to pay the price for our sins that we might know forgiveness. Jesus joins the others being baptised by John, but his is a little different. We read together from verse 21. Now, when all the people were baptised, and when Jesus also had been baptised and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Luke tells us that on being baptised, as Jesus is praying, the heavens opened. I mean, just imagine being there. That must have been quite a spectacle. All these people who were there to be baptised, who bore witness to it, left them in no doubt that this man was different. (laughs) With the heavens open, the Holy Spirit, the the presence of God, the Spirit of God came and descended on Jesus in the form of a dove. Think, wow, this is weird. <laughs> this guy has just got baptised and praying and the heavens have opened. There's some dramatic something in the sky and then a dove's landed on him and that's no ordinary dove. Like, what's going on? And then the Father's voice spoke from heaven to Jesus. You are my son. With you I am well pleased. Presumably that audible voice was loud enough for those around to hear it. Awesome. Imagine being there and hearing that. It would have left those people in in no no doubt whatsoever. Like, this is the son of God. (laughs) Like, This is amazing. The one who we've been waiting for, the long-promised rescuer, is here. The one who John's been telling us about to prepare the way for is here. Amazing. Luke wants us to see it and to be just as convinced. And as if this incredibly dramatic verification of who Jesus was, wasn't enough. Luke then follows it up with a list of names, which on the surface seem a bit less dramatic than open heavens, a dove descending, and a voice coming out of the sky, right? But this list of names is no less important. We're not going to read them all now, uh, because there's lots of them, (laughs) but we're going to read the first few and the last few, uh, and you'll see why. So we read this from verse 23. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph. 
the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, and we go on, so on and so forth, until we get to this near the end from verse 36. The son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalil, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. This list serves a number of purposes, but the most significant is this. This list of Jesus' human ancestors begins by saying he was the son, supposedly, of Joseph. Now we know why Luke says that, because we know that actually Jesus was born to Mary, but that God was his father. He was born of the Spirit, not from Joseph. And then his line of descendants continues, and it doesn't stop at David, knowing that the Jews were waiting for a Messiah to come from David's line, which Jesus did. And it doesn't even stop at Abraham, knowing that the Jews were waiting for the Messiah to come and fulfill God's promise to Abraham's descendants. But it goes all the way back to Adam and concludes ultimately with God. See, straight after this voice from heaven declaring that Jesus is the Son of God to underline this. We get this kind of human genealogy that says he's got these descendants. He's a real man, but he's also fully God. He was fully God and fully human. Emmanuel, God with us, born as a descendant of Adam, but the Son of God. See, that only two people could ever be listed like this as the Son of God because they have no human father. And that's Jesus and Adam, the first man created. See, Adam had no human father created by God, and Jesus is the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Godhead. This is amazing, and it's necessary that we get it. See, it's essential that we understand that Jesus was both God and man because he needed to be both God and man in order to be capable of and qualified to see through God's rescue plan for humanity. We read in Romans chapter 5 that just as sin and death came through one man, Adam, so righteousness and life came through one man, Jesus. See, Adam, man, rejected God and sinned. And no subsequent man was capable of breaking that cycle. God himself had to do it. And Jesus came to do just that. Christ, the Son of God, became a son of Adam so that we, sons of Adam, might become sons of God. That 
is good news indeed. That is good news indeed. Jesus, Luke wants us to be clear about in these opening verses, is the Son of God. Come to rescue us. Come to seek and save the lost. Come to pay the price for your sin and my sin so that we might be forgiven, so that we might enter into life and life eternal with God. It's amazing. And how do we receive him? How do we respond to him? Luke's told us through the words of John. We do it by repenting, by recognizing that we need forgiveness, by turning from our sin, by humbling ourselves, by putting away our pride and saying, God, I need you. God, I I, I want relationship with you. I recognize that I was created for intimacy with you, but I know that my sin gets in the way. I know that my, my default, my kind of default heart position is to want to please myself and to want to, to center things around me. Lord, I, I turn away from that and I turn towards you and I say, would you forgive me? Would you help me to live for you? I'm, I'm, I'm turning away from living for myself, and Lord, I'm living for you from here on in. And as we do that, we make the path straight, and we receive the King of glory. I'm going to pray and hand back over to Joe. I want to encourage you. Maybe you've been a Christian for a long time, And today, you just want to want to come back and recommit yourself to God again. Maybe there are things that have just begun to creep into your life that you know aren't right, that you've begun living to please yourself rather than living to please God. And you hear John's stark warning today, and you think, gosh, I need to turn again. Lord, would you forgive me? And maybe you've gone to church for years or maybe you've just joined us the first time today maybe you've gone through the motions for years but you realize today I've never done that I've never repented I've never turned my back on my sin and turned my face to God and said Lord forgive me Help me to live for you. Help me to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. I want to encourage you to join me in praying now before we sing this final song.